My name is James Hill and welcome to Mez, a podcast series where I speak to successful people with a particular expertise or passion about the themes, ideas and experiences that challenge them. This series, I'm speaking to people who have thrived in isolated, remote or solitary endeavours. It was you know, a simulated mission to Mars, so we were in near total isolation. Uh, there were six of us who lived in a small habitat that was about the same size as a, you know, an average house. We had a 20 minute communication delay and we spent eight months there doing pretty much everything you would expect Martian astronauts to do. Our guest today is James Bevington. James is an engineer turned astrobiologist doing his PhD at the University of New South Wales, sending Earth microbes into space and measuring how they respond. In 2017, James took himself and a team of five to Mars. Well, almost, as commander of a NASA funded mission called High Seas. As part of that mission, he and his five crewmates lived in complete isolation for eight months with little contact with the outside world. But now he's here. Welcome, James. Thank you. Really glad to be here and be able to share some of the stuff that we learned from Mars with uh, the world. You were isolating back in uh, 2017 before it was cool. How is life mid-pandemic treating you? Are you half man, half Sophie yet? It's actually pretty good. You know, there's a lot of things I found that have been similar to high seas and some things that are totally different. And I'm sort of struggling along with everybody else. And I'm getting, you know, a lot of phone calls and emails from friends and family and, you know, the media asking, you know, how do you do that? How do you do it? And yeah. Sometimes I just have to say, you know what, I'm figuring it out with you. <laughs> I can imagine. And it's quite nice to actually see somebody. We're socially distancing, of course, but it's nice to see uh, another face and, and do this in person. So thanks very much for, for sparing the time. My first outing in, I think, about two months. <laughs> yeah, so. well, it's, it, it feels good, doesn't it? So for people that don't know you or who might not have seen your TEDx talk in, in 2018, where, where I first saw you, what, what on earth were you doing on Mars? So we were simulating what life would be like for Martian astronauts. So mostly the study was focused on psychology and understanding how we responded and reacted, how we formed teams, how we tackled problems. But this was, you know, a simulated mission to Mars. So we were in near total isolation. Six of us, we lived in a small habitat that was about the same size as a, you know, an average house. 20 minute communication delay. And we spent eight months there doing pretty much everything you would expect Martian astronauts to do. We had some science projects and we had some, you know, we had to maintain things and be very self-sufficient. Sometimes we would go out in spacesuits and take measurements of the local area and collect some samples and things like that. Wow. So if you were going to paint a picture of a typical day during that experiment, what would that look like? It's pretty interesting, right? We tried to keep a fairly standard type schedule. So Every Monday looked like every other Monday and every Tuesday yeah. looked like every other Tuesday, but Monday and Tuesday didn't necessarily look the same. It's so a bit that, like now. <laughs> right. And it was fairly structured, but within the structure, we had a lot of flexibility to do different things. So a typical day, we would usually start with some sort of morning meeting to get everybody on the same page. And then a lot of times we would go into either a, a spacewalk or some science exercises inside of the hab, you know, different measurements yeah. we needed to make or experiments we needed to do. And then lunch, and then a lot of times in the afternoon was dedicated to actually giving the researchers information. So psychological surveys yeah. or uh, you know, biological samples, or we yeah. would play interactive games that they could track how we were interacting with each other. And in total, there were six of you in that in that quite small living space. Wow. Because I, I know that in your TEDx talk, you spoke about managing conflict. How was it living with, with five other people in such close proximity? 
So a lot of people instantly just think, wow, like you must have just fought all the time and had some epic battles. And like, how did you make it through? Do you still talk to these people? I can't imagine you still talk to these people. You right? can give us some juicy details if you like. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's not much to say, right? We we actually got along really well. Yeah. And I think that's the surprise. And what was really powerful about this experience was that despite all the odds against us, we figured out how to build a team and how to interact in a way that didn't involve arguing and yelling and fights. And it's not that we didn't have conflicts, but we really learned how to manage those conflicts. What must an example of that look like? How do you, when you first feel the rumblings of something like that happening in a confined space, does someone step in and say, we can't do this? <laughs> so, so it's a good question. I think, you know, part of your question actually really illustrates what's best. Understanding that something's brewing is actually the number one. You have to be able to, to understand with yourself that something upset you and maybe why so that you can communicate about it. And then it's approaching someone maybe who upset you and just tell them, hey, you know, this thing happened and it bothered me and here's why it bothered me. And can we maybe figure out a way to avoid doing that in the future? And I think the really important part for us about conflict was to really see it as you and the other person working together to solve a problem rather than you versus the other person, right? Because when you think about it as working together and teamwork, you can use all of the normal teamwork, but it just dissolves that sort of negative emotion and that tense, you know, feeling that comes with conflict. It's, It's always hard to do. Once you initiate it, and if you can initiate it in that light, you know, the conversations become much more productive. It sounds like even though to someone like me who that the thought of being uh, stuck with uh, five other people in a very small space for eight months is quite like uh, anxiety inducing. But it, it sounds like when you were saying that it's not really the time spent with you get learnings from the five others, but you also, I imagine, learn a lot about yourself, even though you're in very close proximity to us. Absolutely. That must have been quite interesting. Were you, before you went in, were you quite an introverted person to begin begin with or self-reflective person to begin with? Self-reflective, yes. Introverted, I would say no. I think we were all pretty 50-50. I mean, you have to be somewhat introverted, but some extroverts. You're, you're with a small group, always with a small group, everything, all the time. And I suppose you need to feel confident to address something. It, it, can be, it can be really nerve wracking to do, yeah. right? Because you're never going to be more than 10 meters away from that person for another several months. So if it doesn't go well, you know, you're stuck with them. But also if it's, there's something not working, you really have to address it. And so you've got to have the confidence and trust in the other person yeah. to know that they, they also want you know, what's best collectively, um, which is going to be to solve whatever the problem is. Yeah. And usually it's really easy. I mean, it's just a matter of speaking up first and a lot of times when we'd have our morning meetings, someone would say, all right, guys, look, you know, this thing has been happening and it's been bothering me. And as soon as that person would say it, another three would, you know, raise their hands and go, oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. I've that too. <laughs> you know, you just think like, well, how long has this been going on? Why have we all just been sitting back until the person was the first to hear yeah. that grievance? And so I think that was a really important lesson to learn. How about the jobs you were actually doing? If something went wrong with one of the tasks... Was that a source, like a failure in task? Was that a source of annoyance or frustration? I think it was, you know, just like it always is. It's an opportunity to learn. And it was usually us learning together. And one of the most important things that we did was debrief. So, you know, I think that's really, really important. It's like the most underutilized tool. And I use it now for everything. Anytime I get a chance, I try to debrief things. And it's just because, you know, we've all heard the phrase, you know, fail faster, 
Yeah, that only yeah, works yeah, yeah. if you learn from your mistakes. Exactly. And um, or I guess learn from your successes as well. Also. And so, you know, the debrief did so many different things that were extremely advantageous. And one of them was learning from the mistakes and, and really, you know, helping to do better in the future. But it also sort of set an expectation for the team that we were going to improve and that our goal was to improve, you know. And so that really set this trajectory for the team to just continue improving all the way through the mission. I mean, even the last spacewalk that we did we were never going to do another one the crew was really upset we weren't going to debrief because they're like yeah we have to learn what we did wrong and right on this you know just like, we're never going to do another one <laughs> it doesn't matter you know but that shows the attitude that they had that they wanted to continually improve and the other thing that it does in debrief is it's always really easy to point at you know one person that dropped the ball but when you have that debrief, you have those conversations and you understand pretty quickly that actually the team usually dropped the ball. Um, and I think there's an excellent example from NASA. So NASA actually keeps a database of all of their debriefs. So if they have a mission oh, wow, failure okay. or something, all of, they'll publish all of the recommendations. And, you know, <laughs> it's like when uh, you phone up somewhere and it says your calls will be recorded for training purposes. <laughs> Basically. But it's cool. It's publicly available. You can Google it and you can find it and you can actually see all of the mistakes that they've made. And so yeah. like there's this example of a mission that failed because of a unit's conversion right so one team was measuring in feet and the other team was like oh, okay. which can right and so yeah. they they miscalculated the trajectory to get to mars and they lost the spacecraft over it wow. so it's really easy to point at the one person that wrote the software and go why didn't you just multiply by three what are yeah. you doing but actually in the debrief it came out that there was something like i think it was 18 different failure points it was either 16 or 18 Wow. Right. But it was all the way up the chain and then all the way down on the other yeah. side. Right. And so when you debrief, you understand, wait, this failure didn't happen because one person didn't write the right yeah. code. You know, there was multiple yeah. failure points there. That and so it sounds like it's just, whether you're on Mars or if you're on planet Earth, it sounds like communication is yeah. still always going to be key. Absolutely. <laughs> so you found you and your, your team found yourself on the side of a volcano in Hawaii. You must have felt similar to how people feel during this pandemic, a sense of like disconnection from each other? How did that impact you? You know, it was pretty interesting. In the HAB, we didn't really have good communication outside. Yeah. Everything was through this 20-minute communication delay. So if I sent you an email, that was 20 minutes. And then when you replied, it was another 20 minutes. It was 40 minutes. And you, you can't have like a Skype call or Zoom or anything So no like walking, no, none of the travesties that we're seeing at the moment, like right. people walking to the shower none of that. Um, on a Zoom call. And there's just <laughs> nothing live, right? It was just email. And so what ends up happening is you're forced to build your social support network inside. What's really different out here is that we have Skype and we have Zoom on the phone, right? And so you see now everyone is having more phone calls with family and friends outside. And that's yeah. been very true for me, right? Yeah. I Rather than rely on my very small network at home of just two others and one's usually gone, you know, calling my family and Absolutely. calling my friends and, and things like that outside of my network. So or it's outside of my sort of physical you know, network. So in a lot of ways, it's the exact opposite. Right. And I'm kind of learning that along with everybody else. What did you miss the most? Ooh. Or from... Access to information, I think, was the biggest one. Yeah, because you didn't even Google. Right? We, we like, I couldn't just, you know, if I had a problem, I couldn't just Google it. I had to send an email to someone yeah. and ask them to Google it for me and hope that they knew what I was talking about yeah. and could provide useful information. And sometimes they could, and sometimes it was just too much, you know. And so I think, to me, that was probably the biggest thing I missed. It was gone. And I suppose what we've had here, or what you had on your mission, was the certainty that it was eight months long. You didn't have a countdown clock, did you? You didn't, like, tear off the dates. 
a couple of crew members had a calendar and they would sort of wow. mark off or count down. That would make the long days feel really long. I didn't imagine. do it. For me, it didn't really matter. I mean, I sort of knew. Yeah, you're right. There was that certainty in, you know, it comes to an end on this day and, you know, that's the end of the mission and we walk out and go back to normal life. Oh, wow. Here, obviously, we don't really know, you know, and it's country dependent. Well, exactly. It on- it's the uncertainty, I think, that causes some of that anxiety. <laughs> Thinking, knowing that I was going to go on a mission for eight months causes some anxiety as well. I thought of a question when, when you were speaking about like when living in close proximity and I was like, sometimes you must have wished you could have just got up and gone outside. Not being able to leave that small space very easily. How did that affect you? Definitely, there were some times where we thought, man, if I could just go have a walk, uh, blow off some steam yeah. or something, you know, or just even be outside. It's a nice day out and we're stuck in. But yeah. actually, you know, the inside outside thing surprised me because you could easily go a couple of weeks and not go outside wow. and it didn't bother you. And yeah. I was really surprised by that. Would it um, bother you here now? Or. A little bit, I mean, I, but I try to, you know, like go out in my yard or maybe in the front and get a bit of sun. And... At least you don't have to spend 30 minutes putting on a suit at that time. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't have to ask permission. It's you know, a lot easier. <laughs> oh, yeah. You had to ask permission to live. Yeah, absolutely. We had to have a plan of action. It had to be approved. So we had to have, you know, safety measures in place. And usually there was a reason it wasn't. We feel like going out. We were going to go make a scientific measurement or do yeah. some maintenance or something. Sometimes we would spread those a little bit, make something that could have been done in one outing too. You know, knowing that it would probably help with the mood a bit, but we tried not to do that as much as possible. We might fudge it a touch on the edge, but we did always have to have some sort of... As long as mission control didn't that. But like, I mean, we had to convince them, right? So there yeah, had to be yeah. a little bit of merit. Oh, so you had to like ju- justify why you were going to leave. You had to say it was for... Yeah, usually. You know, we they didn't question us frequently, but yeah. we sent them good documentation. But, so there was a, a basically a form that we had to fill out and provide adequate. If we didn't have the right information or it wasn't, sort of high enough quality they would usually send it back and go well, what, what is the plan here why are you doing this or okay. you know so it, it yeah, had to be yeah. pretty legitimate kind of plan but you know there's a lot of burden to go outside in the space suit and everything and yeah. so i found that about twice a week for the crew was enough all right some okay. people yeah, wanted yeah. to go a little bit more yeah. some people a little less was it your call as to when people could go out as a commander ish not really yeah. i mean we i ran a pretty flat structure so yeah, i okay. pretty much yeah, let yeah, people yeah do their own thing and I would let them submit the documentation. So yep. if, you know, two people wanted to go out to do a thing that was related to their yes. you know, personal projects or um, their, you know, area of expertise, you know, I didn't question that. I yeah. let them communicate with mission support and if mission support said it was good, then yeah. you know, I was fine with it. Well, yeah, because it just made me think like as a commander or a leader at that time, was there, were there any particularly challenging things about being, being the leader in that environment? Sometimes, I mean, you know, there were a lot of times that I had to implement a policy that I didn't necessarily personally agree with okay, yeah. or, you know, things like that. There's, you know, I can think of one or two uh, spacewalks where the conditions I felt like were a bit too dangerous. And it was one of those where it was like, you know, left of my own devices, I would probably make the decision to go out. But given that it's a team thing, and others, yeah. sort of responsible for everyone's safety. I think they'd probably be okay, but I don't want to take the risk as the kind of leader. Right? Yeah. So I had to be the bad guy and go, yeah, we can't do that. Like, it's, it's too too much risk. Um, yeah. and, that, and that was always tough, right? Because you yeah. have to manage that at so many different levels, yeah. right? It's, it is, at the end of the day, it's kind of a, a work decision, right? But, but you live yeah. with people, they're your best friends, their yeah. social network, yeah. right? And so yeah, it yeah. really mixes pretty quickly, right? If you, oh, upset, of if you upset someone in your work life, and you also have to eat dinner with them you know? <laughs> and then watch a movie with them later. Like you really have to manage that. Wow. 
Do you find it frustrating at all not being able to be as like, you know, impromptu? Like not not being able to necessarily have, go for a long shower after a, a hard day or play a game when you wanted to or something like that. Did you find that hard? Yeah, you get used to it. Yeah. And in the end, it means that you appreciate those things so much more. Like you don't really appreciate a shower that much right yeah. now. But if you only get to take one a week, all of a sudden it's something you really look forward to and yeah. you do it. You're like, oh man, this is so excellent. Yeah. I love this shower. Which is good when you only get, you know, eight minutes of shower per week. Like you... <laughs> was that the hardest thing to ration? Water? For me, it wasn't. What was? Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm such a low kind of consumer anyway. Yeah. I, mean, I live out of a suitcase and I move yeah, continent yeah. to continent yeah. every nine months. So this was a pretty normal uh, yeah, situation yeah. for me. Like the media hated me, right? They would they would send a question and ask, you know, how is it to live with so little? And they're like, kidding. We have so much stuff. I've been trying to get rid of stuff. <laughs> like, oh, that's not really the answer that's going to connect with people. Can you like tell something? And I was like, no, just ask somebody else. <laughs> um, so for me, it was like pretty natural, normal yeah. way of life. Usually conserved extra shower time so that we would be able to do a like have load of laundry at the end. Oh, okay. Um, so usually I would only use about four minutes of yeah. shower per week. I, with all of this planning though, you must be a fantastic, do, do any of your mates ever ask you to book the holidays? <laughs> like, you must be a great scenario planner. I think I've gotten pretty good at it, right? But it's a, it's a particular type of management. We had all the resources that we needed, but we had to rely only on those resources. So we had to be self-sufficient. So what I'm pretty good at is self-sufficiency. Okay. We have these things. We don't have the other things. You know, we don't have a long supply chain. Yeah. The supply chain is from here to yeah. next to us, and that's wow. it. Um, and so I've certainly that's impacted me and, and the way I do things now. I mean, I'm doing that now with my startup company. I, I have a 3D yeah. printer, and I've made everything that I need because it's difficult to get oh, wow. things in the supply chain, right? That's and incredible. So, like, very much sort of plays into my daily life now. Wow. Because, yeah, we've spoken a bit about the, the challenges of life in that environment, but you must have had some great times or there must have been some really funny times. Uh, absolutely. So I, I think what was really important about the crew is that we uh, we made a point to have a really strong sort of social atmosphere. Yeah. You know, we had dinner together every night, which I think was probably the best part of the mission. Just those nightly dinners. You know, we would just do silly things. We would rearrange all the furniture to have into like a subway. Or oh, right. we okay, would yeah. have like hibachi nights. Or we would have like an open mic night. Or we would <laughs> That's super night. funny. The yeah. best one for me was uh, we would build forts. So you almost regressed like play. Like yeah. Play. Right. Like, did you, were people watching? Did you have like cameras on? No. Oh, no so people couldn't see. Like, you, no. But we, yeah. like we had, um, we had surveys, right? So we had self report, okay. you know, kind of what we had done that day. But yeah, like, you know, you think we basically lived in a tent anyways, and then we would make a tent inside of a tent. It's oh, a big fort. But of course, we're all, you know, engineers and scientists with like, so infinite amount of time. So these yeah. things got pretty absurd. And, you know, we had hallways and lights, you know, ropes going everywhere. We had like 3D printed yeah. special hooks to be able to hang the ropes. And the, That's the, so cool. It's yeah. like the fort of my like childhood oh, dreams. Epic. Me and epic. my brother would have been nowhere close to <laughs> of integrity in, uh, in forts. It's also just like kind of funny to think about these, you know, like very professional people. We're all sort of want to be astronauts and all take our careers very seriously and have more education than you can ever imagine. We are like building yeah, forests. Yeah, <laughs> the glue keeping it all together. <laughs> so I guess as, as an expert isolator, what would you say were the, the hidden benefits of a life on, on Mars? Yeah, the simplicity is the one that always strikes me. You know, you, you, it takes a while to embrace. And once you learn to embrace it, it's pretty nice. But 
you know, I didn't have to think about what I was going to do on Friday, who I was going to do it with, how I was going to get there, how much it was going to cost within yeah. my budget. You know, I pretty much knew it was going to be with the crew. It was going to be in a habitat. It wasn't going to cost any money because we didn't have any. You know, that was it. All right, we had a movie or board games. Wow. Right. So the decisions were just so much simpler. And I, I really appreciated that. It, it took me a while to get used to it. But once I did... It was excellent. So you had like, uh, did you have movies and stuff? Mm. You could still watch them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we had okay. movies. We had board games. But you could, did you have loads of like Netflix levels of choice or did you? Uh, no, we could ask. That would not be simple. We could, yeah, <laughs> we could ask people to get us things and it was take a while to get and it was sometimes pretty difficult to get uploaded to the habitat. But we did have our drive with some movies on it that the previous crew had left us. Yeah, there was more than enough on there. Oh, good. <laughs> Back on planet earth present day planet earth at the moment what projects are you working on now you mentioned something about a, a startup so i've got a space startup that is in sounds its, super cool by the way <laughs> yeah it's in its infancy so it's called the interplanetary exploration institute and it's a not-for-profit and i'm gonna build basically hardware and devices to be able to do biological experiments in space so um, i've started building some prototypes i've bought a 3d printer so that i can do some of this prototype work and um, so I've been doing that in my spare time and I'm trying to finish up my PhD at uh, UNSW. Absolutely. So what sort of things do you, were you sent to space and would it be involved with the, because I read that you did some work in your PhD with the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Will it be affiliated to that as well? Yeah, hopefully. You know, cool. Space Station is kind of the main place that experiments yeah. are going these days. And it's a really nice pipeline. You can uh, send an experiment for about 30,000 US. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, if you, there's some additional fees if you want to get it back, it's a bit more and yeah. Uh, depending on how much power and data you need when it's up there, it might cost a bit more, but uh, it's pretty easy. And they're, they've they've designed this kind of standard interface, right? So it's yeah. sort of plug and play now. That's just incredible, isn't it? For me, it's incredible for it's, you. It's like, yeah, it's incredible yeah. for everybody, right? Because <laughs> it used to be if you wanted to send an experiment, you yeah. had to get it approved by a space agency, yeah. and then they would spend millions of dollars doing this custom design and yeah. decades of training and engineering. Yeah. And now, you know, they go, well, yeah, here's the box. If it meets the requirements, we'll send it up. And, you know, the astronaut will plug it in. And if it works, great. Yeah. If it doesn't, that's on you. And so it, but it's brought the price down substantially, yeah. right? You know, it used to be millions. And now we're talking about 30,000 yeah. US to do an experiment in space. That's good, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of bridge the gap between biology and engineering. I have that dual training. And yeah. so I, I understand the engineering and the biology. And I'm trying to just blend those together and build a box, basically, that fits this form factor that also does the thing biologists need it to do. So, so what sort of things do you send to the... Okay, so I've sent a couple of things. So far, I've sent three experiments. One of them was uh, DNA. So we just sent up some DNA to see how the space radiation would impact. And I'm in the process of analyzing that right now, but it looks like there wasn't a whole lot of damage, which is pretty encouraging. I've sent sort of a genetically engineered plant. So this plant had a switch in it that we could turn on. So we were able to demonstrate that the switch worked in space. So the plant had, when you say a switch that you could turn on, what can you do with this? It's not like a dancing sunflower that sings... Not that, no, that so it's what it is is like so I, I it's sort of this like it's a genetic switch so we turn it on but then you can put a lot of different things behind it so for wow. us we just turn the plant white so that we could see it wow. but you could imagine putting in um, sort of an enzymatic pathway or this like pathway that would make vitamins or medicines for example all oh, right yeah. so if the astronaut needed some sort of vitamins or medicine they could flip the switch in the plant the plant would make the vitamin or the medicine they would consume it and that's really important because for a trip to Mars say the shelf life of most medicines is shorter than the time it takes to get to Mars. Okay. And so they're right. going to be able, they're going to need to be able to make medicines and vitamins yeah. 
on their trip to Mars and back. So this is sort of a format that we're thinking about trying to package all yeah. that together. Wow. And I take it for you, it would be a dream to, to go to Mars? Absolutely. If they asked me, I would do it. When do you think like that? that uh, you know, it comes down to us deciding that that's what we want to do. You know, I don't, mm. there's not any major showstopper technologies. There's still a lot of work that has to be done, yeah. but it's really a matter of us deciding that that's what we want to spend our money on. And when we do that, we'll go to Mars. And until we, you know, as long as we don't do that, we won't, yeah. right? So I sort of ask that question back to you. When do you want to go, you know? Wow. I don't know. It makes me nervous. <laughs> it makes you excited. It makes me nervous thinking about it. But I, I take it you'll be you front of the line. You don't have to go. I don't have to go. <laughs> I'd love to watch your adventures when you do. So what's next for you post-lockdown now? on How are you going to celebrate the end of or the potential end of social distancing? Yeah, good question. I would love to be able to go into the city and go to a pub and have a beer. Yeah. People around me again, you know, it's such a normal thing, but when you haven't done it for so long, you start to think, well, man, that's... It would have been my uh, absolute uh, choice as well. If you'd yeah. asked me the same question, I would have said the same thing. Oh, we might have to go for beers. <laughs> Let's do that. Once, uh, once things open back up. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking to you and hearing from your experience. But yeah, th- thank you for joining. No, thanks for having me. You know, it's always an honor to be able to talk about the experiment that we did and sort of communicate with the world about the lessons that we learned and hopefully it helps some people. I'm sure it will. Um, thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Miss with me, James Hill, and guest James Bevington.